0: Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4. And for those of you who may be wondering if I hear any ringing, I do. And I'm going to ignore it. And I'm going to trust that you will do the same. So just to say that ahead of time. I don't want you to be distracted by that. I'm glad that we have this kind of technology that we can use and it will help, um, but don't let it distract you today. Mark chapter 4, verses 21 through 34. Let me read this text for us. And he said to them, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden. hidden. The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe at once, he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God or What parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable. But privately, to his own disciples, he explained everything. Pythagoras, Aristotle, Galileo, Copernicus, Newton. Their combined labors, whether you realize it or not, have changed the course of civilization as we know it today. Without their clear explanations about the nature of our world and how it works, we would still be, in some cases, afraid to fall off the edge of the earth when sailing. We would be without automobiles or airplanes. There wouldn't be any plumbing, structurally sound buildings, and believe it or not, I can explain this to you later, but there probably wouldn't even be a World Series without their contribution. Now, a brief summary of everything that they have studied and that they have taught us helps us. It helps us operate in our day-to-day, everyday existence, even though we don't really know much about what they taught. What these men ultimately have shown us is that an awareness of the universe keeps us from unnecessary fears and anxieties, while at the same time helping us to advance as a civilization. I mean... It's just good to know the facts. I mean, things like knowledge, and those of you who are in high school or college, you've got to just trust me on this. Things like science and physics and chemistry and economics. Like these facts, not the theories, but the facts impact the way that we live. You can choose to work against the law of gravity, for example, or you can choose to accept it and adjust accordingly, as many of us do. It affects how we live. The laws of the universe Affect what we do, how we do it. And the same is true spiritually. It wouldn't be nice to know like just some clear-cut spiritual laws as concrete as gravity itself or a spherical earth. That if we knew them would just have the kind of impact that we wanted to have on our life, or if there were some just concrete unchangeable, unalterable facts that we could just rely on about our spiritual lives, would it be of help? Undeniable, irrefutable laws. Laws for the eternal world. Laws for the kingdom of God. I think it would be good because it's easy for us to feel sometimes like we're missing some of the painstaking realities of spiritual life. It's easy to understand gravity and weight. But it's less easy to understand why your spiritual life sometimes seems really grounded and sometimes just up in the air. It's it's easy to understand that the earth is not flat, but it's round. But it's more difficult to understand why sometimes you Love the word and read it voraciously, and other times you're just full and don't seem to want any more of it. It's, it's easy to explain, really, magnetism and how that works in our world and polar opposites and how opposites attract. But it's hard to figure out like why we look around in our world sometimes and it just looks like it's going to pot. And whether it be an election year or not, we think the gospel, it's powerful, it's supposed to be doing something, and the reality is we live in a post-Christian America. I mean, things get worse by the day, and we're, we think that this word should be fixing the country and the world, and why isn't it? What's the deal? The early followers of Jesus wondered the exact same thing. Their experiences led them to question the realities of spiritual life, the mysteries of eternity, the laws of the kingdom, the nature of the kingdom itself. See, despite their own convictions, the original readers of Mark's gospel, those Christians in Rome in the mid-50s, assumed, they were beginning to assume, I'll put it this way, that the Christian movement just didn't have a chance. I mean, it was a rough start. It was not only a rough start for them, but even as you're reading through the first three chapters of Mark, you see that Jesus is doing a good job and he's got a lot of power, but the people still aren't submitting to his purposes. (laughs) He wants to teach them about the kingdom. He wants them to live a different way. He wants them to submit to his rulership. And yet all they want is a dog and pony show. They want more miracles. They want more healings. They want some type of political ambition from Jesus. They are disappointed by him. And so far, if you look at chapter 3 and you see what Jesus has set out to do and what he's actually done, we don't have much success. So Mark, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, groups together a series of Jesus' teaching in chapter 4 to help us understand why do things seem so off? Why is there such a mixed response to the gospel? Why is the kingdom not coming in the way that we were expecting it to come? That's what these parables are all about. He puts them together because he wants us to understand, and Jesus in particular wants us to understand the nature of the kingdom. We need to understand that what, the way that we think things will work in the spiritual world don't always work out that way but there are some predictable patterns, some movements, if you will, that we can count on in the kingdom of God. There are certain things that will take place. You can call them facts. You can call them laws. I'll call them movements that we can count on that will help us through the discouragements of what we think should be and what actually is. The first movement that we see is in verses 21 through 25 where we find out that the kingdom naturally moves from concealed to revealed. That's one of the first things we can count on about the kingdom of God. It naturally moves from concealed to revealed. Look at verses 21 to 25. And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. Now let me pause right there for a moment. Well, you need to understand, because this parable itself can seem confusing to some. Let's just break it down in its parts. When you look at these first couple verses, Jesus is telling you the intention of his teaching. Now, I cut the message off last week at verse 20 for time's sake. But you need to understand that when Mark intended for people to read this, they were reading chapter 4 all at one time. So, when whatever he is talking about here, about a life and lamp and understanding... It's talking about whatever he was talking about in verses 1 through 20. Now, we remember that to be Jesus' teaching, his parabolic teaching, teaching in parables. And Jesus is disclosing his intentions here. He says, look, my teaching, even though it may be confusing to some, even though it may be hard to understand, the intention of it is that people would understand the truth. He intended his teaching to clarify for those who could hear it, and it would obscure for those who could not hear it. We talked about that last week. And I love the analogy that he gives. He gives a little simple analogy of a lamp. And he says a lamp is intended to give light. Now, it just makes sense. You don't take a lamp and put it under a bed or put it under a couch or put it under a basket. Lamps are intended to be displayed in such a way that all could benefit from its light. Jesus is saying about his teaching, he intends for it to be a, a teaching, an understanding that enables all in the house to understand it. This is kind of the counterpart to the difficult verse that we dealt with in verses 10 through 12. He said, look, even though it will be confusing for some, for my followers, I intend for truth to move from concealed to revealed, from less clear to more clear. That's what I want my word to be for my people. I want them to understand my truth. Now, that's good news for us. Jesus wants us to understand. He even adds in verse 22, for nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. Now notice his explanation here. He's saying that this the unfamiliarness of Jesus' message is intended to give light. He wants people to understand it. And I really appreciate this because he basically says two things, and he says them in different ways, but they mean the same thing, and they both communicate this. I intend for my teaching to be understood. It may seem like a secret, but I want people to know it. It may seem confusing, but I want it to be clear. And I like his terms that he uses, secret and hidden. You know, it's, it's kind of like Easter eggs, right? Y- you hide Easter eggs with the intention that someone finds them, unless you're just a cruel father or a mother. I mean, you put them out in some of the obvious places, and then you kind of give up at the end and dump them in a big pile. I mean, that's that's we, we, we hide them because we want people to find them. Hidden things are intended to be revealed. Someone who hides a treasure intends on finding it one day. They don't just bury it. An X marks the spot on the map. They intend for somebody to find it. The same thing about a secret. Secrets, by the way, are intended to be disclosed, not to everybody, but to some. If I tell someone a secret, I want them to know something that I don't want other people to know, but I still want them to know something. And all Jesus is explaining is that, look, even though this my teaching about the kingdom may seem to be confusing to you, and even though some people, it's going to remain a mystery and it's going to remain hidden, I do intend for my followers to understand the truth about the kingdom. This is my intention. So, in light of that, he gives some instruction. The instruction comes at verse 23. Notice it, he starts to give commands. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. He's already said this. And he said to them in verse 24. Pay attention to what you hear. Now, notice, again, two commands, very clear. He's telling his followers, look, even though not everyone can understand what I'm saying, those who can must understand. Listen to my teaching. Listen to my word. The command two, pay attention to what you hear. Literally, in the Greek language, it says, see what you hear. That's a new level of knowledge, by the way, right? When you can actually see something. You've heard somebody talk about something before, but... Then when you finally see it for yourself, you're like, oh, wow. He's wanting this figuratively to happen for them. He says, look, listen to what I'm saying. Get a clear picture of what I'm trying to teach. And how do we do that? Verse 24b adds this. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And still more will be added to you. Now, that's an interesting one. If I were to put this in modern vernacular, I would say it this way. You'll get into my teaching, or you'll get out of my teaching what you put into it. You'll get out of my teaching what you put into it. The the analogy here is he's talking about a measure. Now, he uses the term measure three times. Uh, Measure you use it, measure to you, and then still more will be added to you. That's the same word, by the way, in the original language for measure that's used earlier. So, with the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be measured to you. (laughs) It sounds uh, kind of interesting, but basically all it was talking about was a grain scoop. If you were to take a grain scoop and you take a small grain scoop and you get that and you put that in your bag to sow seed with, well, you're only going to get that much of a return. If you get a larger grain scoop and you fill your bag with that, you're going to get even more of a return. It was a pretty common proverb. The more you bring into the process, the more you'll get from the process. If I were to modernize this, I would say it'd be like investing into a startup. I had somebody actually contact me this week and said, hey, we're going to give you this opportunity to invest in such and such. You know, we're getting this business off the ground, blah, blah, blah. We promised this kind of return. I said no. (laughs) But maybe I've missed something. Can you imagine those people who were first going to invest in Google (laughs) and then You know, some people only putting in $1,000 and then some people putting in $100,000 and the kind of return that would come from that. Jesus is saying, look, with my teaching, you're going to get from it what you put into it. This is how true believers understand the word. They work for it. They think. Now, we'll discuss the practicalities of this in a moment, but I want you to also notice this warning here. It's not just how you listen but he tells them why they need to listen. And that's in verse 25. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is exactly what we saw in the parable from last week. If you show no interest in Jesus' teaching, you will eventually lose all opportunity to understand. If we're going to use the investing analogy, you only have so long to invest. You can only hold on to your money for so long. the phrase that we use in our day often is that the poor get poorer and the rich get richer. I can only use this analogy by the way because my kids aren't here today but I have another confession for you that has to do with board games. We played Monopoly last night or we started it on Friday night and we finished it last night later than Tanya have wanted me to finish it. Um, and the kids were learning, they were learning how to play Monopoly. And um, long story short, I won. Um, and, and they lost very poorly because um, <laughs> they'd invested so much time and energy. And this was the question that they kept asking. They're like, Daddy, you keep spending money, but somehow you're making money. I don't understand that. You keep spending money, but you're making money. That's just the way economics work. You, you put something in, you get something back, and they just did not get that connection. And what they did not understand is that if you don't spend any money, you will eventually lose it all, as they did. Every time you play Monopoly, you're going to think about this sermon. Because that's what happens. Somebody at the end of the game will have spent more money and made more money, and then other people will not spend enough and they will have lost it all. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying about his teaching. Look, you're going to invest in my my teaching right now. You're going to try to understand what I'm saying to you right now. You're going to listen carefully to my teaching on the kingdom, and you're going to benefit from it, and it's going to profit. But if you don't hear what I'm saying, If you do not pay attention to my words and what I'm trying to tell you about my kingdom, as opposed to your own expectations, you will lose all opportunity to ever understand my kingdom. So, While confusing on the surface, we see that the parable is pretty clear. For those of you who are here on a regular basis or you've heard the gospel before, I'm telling you, You don't have that long. The the, the truths of the death and burial and resurrection of Christ and you repenting of your sin and receiving Him as Lord and Savior, you can only hear that so many times. There comes a point in time where you've got to invest something. You've got to respond in some way or you will miss out on the opportunity. By the way, questioning and contemplating the gospel is not an investment. Just because you, you wonder like, hmm, I wonder what this truth could mean for me. Or you think, you know what? I think I could submit myself to Christ. That's not an investment. An investment is when you put something into it, when you respond in faith, and when you repent of that sin, and you're willing to go public with that, even through like the waters of baptism, like we're going to do today. These guys who will be baptized in just a few moments are saying, you know what? I've repented of my sin. I've received Christ as Savior. And you know, I want everybody to know that I've done This is a huge investment for them. It doesn't mean as much here in the States, but you go outside of the United States and men who are obeying in this way and ladies who are obeying like happened last week would suffer extreme persecution and consequences for identifying with Christ in such a public way. And Jesus says, look, when you're going to respond to me, the more you put into it, the more you're going to get out of it. And the point is this, that Jesus intends for his followers to understand his truth, but you have to capitalize on what you know. you got to do something with it. The, the application for us would be this, that we need to seek to understand God's truth about the person and the mission and the response to Jesus. We need to understand the gospel. That does take an investment on our part. Even though the kingdom, truth, moves from concealed to revealed, it still requires time and energy on our part. I mean, just think about the 10 minutes that I've had to spend explaining this parable. But once you get to the end of it, there's benefit from it. That's the nature of biblical truth. So how do we invest? Now, I don't want to insult your intelligence, but let me just rehearse some of the more obvious ways that we as believers can increase our capacity in understanding God's kingdom and His world. Listen. Reading and studying the Word. By the way, I would define that as in terms of energy and interest, not just time. Not just the cold, dry, you know, run through a chapter a day or something. But, I mean, really trying to understand the truth. Not just reading the Word, but listening to the Word. Trying to listen to God's truth. While you're driving, while you're exercising. A, a sermon podcast, the, the audio Bible, something. That's why we have course seminars here. Christian audio Another way that you can invest more into the Word so you can get more out of it would be to write down what you think about the Word. By the way, I say write down, not type in. <laughs> when you have to write stuff with a pen, it helps you recall things better. And some of the best devotional times I've ever had in my life, some of those eye-opening moments of truth have come from me with a simple pen in hand writing down things that I see in the Scriptures. And then another way that we can do this is to talk about the Word. That's why we gather in small groups here every other Sunday, and when we intend for our believers to get together and talk through the application of the Word, teach someone the sermon from Sunday. Here You say, well, how in the world would I ever do that? Look, if you're in a conversation tomorrow, and someone says, how was your, your, your weekend? You can simply respond. You blame it on the pastor. You say, you know what? I had a great time in church, and the pastor encouraged me actually to teach what I learned at church to you. Do you have 10 minutes? And then tell them about the Word. I'm telling you, when you teach the Word to other people, you know it at a level that, that is unfathomable. It's just that there's nothing better for clarifying truth than presenting truth. Now, at the risk of sounding like a grumpy old man, I would warn you that gr- gaining clarity on biblical truth is under attack in our way in our day by much modern technology. However, I'm not going to go down that rabbit trail here. But I will, in circle back, whether it be this Wednesday or next Wednesday, try to talk to you about some of the ways that I think that technology is harming our ability to think deeply about the Bible. And if you're interested in that, I would encourage you to come back to that time. Uh, But if I was going to tell you, hey, you need to be a good investor, you need to make good money, go out, make good money, make good money, make good money. And if I never told you about how to save money, I wouldn't be a very good investing coach. In a similar way, I think I could tell you, hey, these are some good things that you can do to invest more in the word and to get more out of it. But if I didn't tell you the ways that you're probably losing a good handle on the word, I don't think I'd be that faithful of a pastor. So we'll talk about those and circle back coming uh, up soon. But I will tell you this, real Christians will contemplate Jesus' teaching. That's the point. They'll think about it. They'll try to understand his word And if you want some verses for that, I would encourage you to write down Proverbs 2, verses 1 through 5. Or 1 John chapter 2, 27, or 1 Corinthians 2, 14 to 16. So three passages I would encourage you to look at this week: Proverbs 2, 1 to 5, 1 John 2, 27, and 1 Corinthians 2, 14 to 16. And you'll find out that God's people can understand his word. The economy of this kingdom is fairly simple. It moves from concealed to revealed. The more you listen, the more you learn. There's another natural movement of the kingdom of God. It not only moves from concealed to revealed, but it also moves from sown to grown. From sown to grown. Look at verses 26 to 29. And he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe at once, he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. So if the previous few verses were about kingdom understanding and how that progresses, this one is about kingdom growth. How does the kingdom actually grow? Not just our understanding of the kingdom, but the implementation of the kingdom. And what you want to see here is that the the word or the seed is the responsible party for growth Not necessarily the diligence through the intellect of the sower. That's exactly what this is uh, intimating for us. Look at verse 26. And he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. And notice how verse 27 starts. He sleeps and rises night and day. Now this parable, there's a third of it right there. It's not half, it's a third. This is basically the backdrop. And the backdrop is simply sowing. He wants you to get the picture of a guy who went out, He threw out some seed. And what's interesting about this, by the way, is that in the previous context, verses 1 through 20, he uses the term sower. Here he just says a man. A man goes out, and he doesn't even use the word sow seed. It says that he just cast seed, that he just threw it out. It reminds me of the time that I uh, took an old watermelon uh, out from the house, and I was supposed to go take it to the woods. And it was just this fun event to take the watermelon and to try to, like, you know, throw it down and let it explode on the edge of the wood. Well, the funniest thing happened. It was like, I don't know, maybe three or four weeks later, that thing started like producing a vine. <laughs> no intention, no growth on my part. Just I'm not a watermelon farmer. I just throw the thing out there. And, then the, and the seed just does the work. That's kind of the picture that he has here. Somebody goes out, they throw the seed, and then all of a sudden, he doesn't even realize it. He scatters the seed, and it's, all he says that he does is that he sleeps, and he rises night and day. Now, interestingly, night and day, ancient Near Eastern world, at least in this part of it, night was the beginning of a day, and then day was the end of a day. So he rises night and day, he sleeps. And so 36% of this guy's time is invested in doing nothing. And yet, still, somehow, this thing grows. But this isn't the focus, this is just the backdrop. Notice the focus on the second half of verse 27. And the seed sprouts and grows, and he knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. So the backdrop is sowing, but the emphasis is on the growing. And here's a question for you. What does the sprouting and growing? Look at the text. What does the sprouting and growing? The seed, right? (laughs) The farmer doesn't do it. The seed does the sprouting and growing. All right, here's the next question. How does the earth produce this thing? What does the text say? Notice, by itself. This is amazing. By the way, I won't quote Greek words at you often, but when I think it'd be helpful, I will, as in this case. The Greek word here is automate. Automate. Now, where do you think that's going? Ultimately, we'll get our English word automatic from the same word that we see here translated by itself. It is just something that you throw out the seed, and then automatically, this the seed begins to have an effect. From dirt comes life, and then notice it comes in all the proper stages. It says that there's, you know, a, a sprig of grass, and then a blade, and then the ear, and then the head in the ear. So it all leads to a harvest and. This could be referring to some type of in-gathering of souls and the end of the world, but I'll tell you, just naturally think of it as a farming analogy. It's just thinking, you put a seed out there, it grows, and it produces a harvest. It's pretty simple. Now, notice, I want you to notice something, how this simple little story would have massaged and adjusted their rigid expectations of what the kingdom was like. I want you to see this little story about the kingdom of God from their point of view. What did they think would bring the kingdom about? What did they think would bring the reign of God? Let me tell you what it wasn't. They did not think that it was going to be a foolish message about a crucified rabbi who would come to life. Farthest thing from their minds. They thought it was going to be a well-planned movement. And they had seen plenty of those. The zealots of popular movement of the day had tried to force the kingdom by staging a revolution. The Essenes thought that they could impress God to come back by their asceticism and their self-discipline and their retreat from sinful society. The Pharisees, whom we know a lot about from this text already, believe that the emergence of the kingdom could be midwife through scrupulous detail to law and legal observance. But Jesus, interpretation of the kingdom his understanding the way that he adjusted things would be that the the simple message the spoken words of his teaching person mission response of the king the gospel is what we would say today the simple gospel would produce a harvest this is way different Now, he intended for his followers to respond with the responsibility to sow the word. I'm not denying that one bit. We emphasized that last week, as a matter of fact. But what he's doing more than anything is that he wants his followers, these disciples especially, to rely exclusively on the word to get the work done. The point of this is that the word does the work. That's the spotlight. The backdrop behind that It's not because of the worker, but it's in spite of him. The word's the powerful element. For those of you who are familiar with Charles Spurgeon, you'll find this story to be illuminating. Spurgeon, by the way, was a famous uh, Baptist preacher in the 19th century. uh, One of the first to kind of run a a church with several thousand people in it uh, in its day. He was uh, testing the acoustics of London's uh, spacious agricultural hall. He was going to be a featured speaker for some joint rally that they were having. And so in his test, he simply proclaims from the stage, and again, there's nobody out there, just a few janitors milling around. Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. A workman was later to tell Spurgeon that he ultimately came to faith from just hearing those very few words spoken in that setting without any intention of his own. And that man ultimately was led to faith in Christ. Does this not remind you of the text that we opened our service with today? Isaiah 55, verses 10 and 11. Listen to it again in light of this context. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes from my mouth It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. That's the word. Do you want to see people come under the reign of God? Do you want them to be part of his coming kingdom? Rely on the word or keep relying on the word. I think this has two implications for us. The first would be that we need to employ the means. The means is the word. That is what God expects us to do. We have to give them the gospel. The gospel is the means. The fruit is the end. It is not. We are not the means. The gospel is the means. But we do have to get the means out there. I would tell you this. Not all of us are public speakers. I get that. But you don't need to be intimidated by your lack of method or even the unimpressiveness of our message. I'm telling you, it is a really simple message. For all the times that we think that we don't have it right, it's pretty simple. Jesus saves sinners. (laughs) Jesus saves sinners. If you know that Jesus, not anyone else, saves, he actually saves them, doesn't just give them a chance, saves sinners, people who are hostile and rebellious to him, you understand the basic message of the gospel and that is what you are to be relying upon. Employ those means. I know it doesn't seem fancy, I know you think that there could be a better way to do it, but this is the little seed. This is the foolish message that Paul said would bring an offense, but also bring about a great fruit and a harvest. You just keep sowing the word. But I would say that there's another implication for us. I want to encourage you here. If you have sown the word, you have employed the means, you need to entrust the ends to God. There comes a point in time where we just have to sleep. Just like that farmer, I just think it's such a so interesting that this is the way that Jesus describes him as one that simply casts seed and he goes to sleep. If I by the way did not believe that that was true. If you did not really believe that, that was true, how would you ever rest at night? If it was really up to us, feeble us, to make the difference, to pitch the sale, to close the deal, why are we even sitting in here right now? There's a point in time in our lives where we just have to trust the message. Yes, we pray, we labor, we can sow more seed, but in the end, the Word does the work. You've sown, don't lose hope. One of my favorite authors, Charles Bridges, 19th century pastor said it this way, the seed may lie under the clods till we lie there and then spring up. Isn't that good? The seed may lie under the clods till we lie there and then spring up. You don't know the effect that the word will have? God's word will do its work. And can I say something to you today? If you're here today and you're struggling with this, whether it be the employing of the means or the entrusting of the ends, you're in the right place. This is faith Bible, church. This is what we're about. For those of you who want more help on sowing seed, this is why we we want you to be a part of us, because we want to help you with that. And for those of you who are sowing seed, but man, you're just really worried about your lost family members and the the times you have sown the seed and haven't seen the response yet. We want to help you entrust the ends to God as well. We want to come alongside you and remind you that no, God's word will do its work. No, we're going to keep praying with you. Everything's going to be okay. Don't try to be an independent farmer. Join us in this effort together. This is the way that God has set it up. So the kingdom of God naturally moves from concealed to revealed, from sown to grown, and finally from insignificant to incomprehensible. From insignificant to incomprehensible. Look with me in verses 30 and 32. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. So the kingdom of God naturally moves from insignificant to incomprehensible. We have another farming metaphor here, but this one emphasizes something different. This one emphasizes the growth and the size of the kingdom and its result. The the last one... Emphasizes the process. How does the kingdom grow? It grows through the distribution of the gospel. But how large will it grow is the question that we see here. And this is the one that concerns them the most. Even notice in verse 30 how Jesus in his parable, he draws out the question by asking, um, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? He's like building up suspense. What parable shall we use for it? And then he gets to his big answer. Are you ready for it? It's not, I want you to know what it's not. it's not breathtaking jewels, it's not a strong mountaintop, it's a mustard seed. That's the big answer. You want to know what the kingdom of God is like? A mustard seed. Pretty insignificant. Now, for them, the mustard seed was just a proverb, the way to talk about the smallest Seed that was of typical access. Were there smaller seeds than the mustard seed? Absolutely. Um, Were there bigger plants than the mustard plant? Yeah. (laughs) But it was a common proverb, kind of like when we say, mighty oaks from little acorns grow. This is a typical speech from that day to talk about the smallness of a mustard seed, the largeness of a mustard plant. Um, It's kind of like if I were to tell you guys, all right, it was as hard as finding a needle in a haystack. Now the implication is it doesn't get any harder than finding a needle in a haystack. But I would beg to differ. I think there are some things harder to find, like a contact lens in the Gulf of Mexico. You know, but just generally speaking, I would say it, it was hard, it was so hard to find it. It was just a needle in a haystack. It, similar thing. Some scholars will critique this to no end. They're like, "Well, the mustard seed—that's not the biggest plant ever." And the mustard—and and the mustard plant is or seed, excuse me. The mustard plant isn't the biggest plant ever. The mustard seed. There are smaller seeds than that. Hey, but look, you'll get the idea. The mustard seed is pretty small. If you have a ballpoint pen with you, just take it out and look at the end of that thing. That's the size of a mustard seed. And it would grow. It's an annual plant, and it would grow anywhere from six to nine feet tall. So I'm 6'4". Can you imagine something that small becoming that large in the course of a year? It was amazing to see the contrast between these two. And it was so big. It's a plant. It's made for mustard, by the way. I mean, like... (laughs) Don't think of anything too noble here. I mean, birds could come and like live in it. That's how big it was. Oh, by the way, I would have you know, I don't know what your translation you're using, but from the ESV that I used it, notice that it said a garden plant. A garden plant. It doesn't say the biggest of all plants. It says the biggest of plants of a garden variety. That's what the Greek word is, by the way. So don't let anybody throw you off on that. Like, well, why didn't it say the redwood trees or the cedars? No, <laughs> it didn't need to. He's just using a simple analogy, and the analogy just is striking because of the contrast between the smallness of the seed and the largeness of the plant, and I'll tell you another reason why it's pretty striking, because it is mustard. Like, if they were thinking of nobility, I mean, if they were thinking, what is the kingdom of God like, they probably would have thought of a cedar of Lebanon. I mean, that's a small seed, and it becomes a big tree, and yet he says a mustard plant already adjusting their expectations of the kingdom and letting them know, look, you may think it may be this huge political fortress, but I'm letting you know right now, even through this analogy, it's different than you think it is. Once again, he's challenging their expectations of the kingdom. The parable shows that the kingdom is not like what they want it to be, and it's much different than they thought it would be. Here, were the, You want to know their expectations. They thought that the kingdom was coming in large and immediately impressive ways. I mean, they thought that it would land with a thud and everybody would know it. But notice, Jesus isn't overthrowing Rome. He's not sitting on the throne of David yet. One author asked it this way, Can one believe that the kingdom of God advances through ignominy, through defeat, through crucifixion? Can one believe that Jesus of Nazareth, who was hanged on a tree, is indeed the judge of the living and the dead? This was hard for them to understand. So at this stage in Mark, Jesus' mission is not a raving success. I mean, crowds are threatening his life by their curiosity. Religious leaders are calling him Satan. His family thinks he's crazy, and he's telling them, I'm bringing in the kingdom. Doesn't sound like it. He's adjusting their expectation. I mean, his true followers at this point are so few, we saw in chapter 3, that they can fit in a 12 by 12 room. Not a significant movement. But here's the point. The kingdom would start off relatively insignificant and would eventually become incomprehensible. Larger than they ever could have imagined, even though it seemed to have had a small start. Even the phrase, by the way, that the birds of the air would build nests in its branches implies that there would potentially be Others that they did not expect to be a part of this. Birds of the air is just another way of saying wild birds. And in Ezekiel 31, verse 6, it's or it's communicated to be Gentiles even. They couldn't imagine a kingdom actually being something other than Jews. And yet the enemies that could have gobbled it up would ultimately find rest under its shade. That's a big deal. I was came across a story this week from a guy at an All Souls church in England. This is where John Stott used to pastor. And he told this fascinating hypothetical story. And again, it is just a story. I don't have any real insight here. This is fiction. Okay? But it illustrates the point. It said that Jesus and Gabriel had a conversation immediately after the ascension. And Gabriel asked Jesus, well, I suppose it's been wrapped up down there. Jesus, not quite, but the foundations have been laid. Gabriel, at least the Middle East is converted. Well, not really, no. Uh, Rome is secure, the capital of the empire, so to serve as a springboard to the rest of the world. Well, no, I haven't been there, but Paul will get there soon. Other emperors and armies have joined our calls, surely. No, but but I but I put down the foundation. Well, what's the foundation? I've left some men to continue my work. How many? Millions? At least thousands? Twelve. Well, eleven actually, because one betrayed me. Pretty unimpressive start, right? And yet. Because we have the end of the book, we can look to Revelation chapter 7 verses 9 and 10 and hear this well. After this I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Is that not amazing? You go from 11 meager men and a message about a crucified and risen Lord and somehow you get to Revelation and it's an innumerable multitude from every tribe and tongue. You can't even count it. That is incomprehensible. And that is how God's kingdom will advance. It may seem insignificant. You may look around and wonder what is going on in our world. Why isn't the gospel making more of an impact? And this text reminds us it is going to be so much greater than you ever thought it could be. He will bring it past beyond our wildest expectations, not us. See, there have been several errors through church history that have put the pressure on us as a church to bring about the kingdom. And I want you to know that we just can't do it. We can sow seed, we can share the gospel, but the kingdom of God does not come from our striving. In the Middle Ages, it was the Crusaders, right? They were constantly trying to retake Jerusalem and build the kingdom of God. But I think in more modern days, in the 20th century, you have had a group of people called post-millennialists who have tried to come in and they say, you know, if we do enough good works, we can make the kingdom come here. There's even the moral majority of the 1980s that thought that, you know what, if we vote right and we get out there and we get everybody to, to be really concerned, we're going to bring it about. And God's rule is going to happen here in America. Look, I'm telling you, we can't do that. By the way, vote. I'm not telling you not to vote. I'm telling you, we don't bring about the kingdom. One of the greatest scholars who ever has has studied this particular subject, and I wouldn't agree with him on everything, but he he gives a nice summary of what God does in regard to the kingdom and what we do in regard to the kingdom. Listen to George Eldon Ladd. I'm going to take out the verse references, but if you want them, email me. The kingdom can draw near to men. It can come, arrive, appear, be active. God can give the kingdom to men. But men do not give the kingdom to one another. Further, God can take the kingdom away from men, but men do not take it away from one another, although they can prevent others from entering it. Men can enter the kingdom, but they're never said to erect it or build it. Men can receive the kingdom, inherit it and possess it, but they are never said to establish it. Men can reject the kingdom or refuse to receive it or enter it, but they cannot destroy it. They can look for it, pray for its coming, seek it, but they cannot bring it. Men may be in the kingdom, but we are not told that the kingdom grows. Men can do things for the sake of the kingdom, but they are not said to act upon the kingdom itself. Men can preach the kingdom, but only God can give it to them. You understand that Philippians 2, 9-11 tells us that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Who brings that about? He does. That innumerable multitude that we see in Revelation chapter 7, who brings that about? He does. God is on the throne. His kingdom is coming. I I love this picture because it's supposed to give us so much hope. How many of you have in your homes, you don't have to raise your hand, but think with me, you have a DVR of some kind. I would hope that on Sundays when we're having church, And you're ever tempted to like watch a game (laughs) that you would use your DVR as opposed to checking your phone. It's a great invention. It's so cool to be able to to set that thing to record while you're away and then to come back to it and see what happened unfolding right before you. Now, sometimes somebody somewhere, even though they know that you want to watch the entire game when you get home and you don't want to know the score. They will tell you the score anyway. That's a different sermon. But it happens. I don't know about you, but I can still get into it. Actually, it becomes even more interesting to me to find out that the team wins. You know, if they're, let's say that I'm a big basketball fan, let's say that they're down by 15 with eight minutes to go and they win. I got to see how this thing plays out. I think what we have in this parable is just a preview of the end. God is disclosing it for us ahead of time, and things can look so dismal right now. It should excite us all the more. Like I can't wait to see how this thing plays out. I mean, I look around, and I just I can't imagine. Like I mean, the Supreme Court has legalized the slaughter of infants in our world it mean, is promoting the destruction of the family by redefining marriage you have countries like Russia and China and the Middle East that are outlawing literally outlawing the spread of the gospel and churches are defecting from faithful gospel proclamation and pastors are being scandalized by immorality and islam and the new atheism are sweeping through a younger generation like wildfire but we know what happens in the end God's perfect Rule will come. And it will be greater than we ever imagined it. He will be victorious. His kingdom will be bigger and greater. And then look at Mark's closing comments in verse 33 and 34. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable. But privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. Now, I love this because what Mark does here is he concludes this information, I mean, this teaching, this section, by informing us that this was the way that Jesus did it from this point forward. He said, look, I'm reminding you that from this point forward, even though he's being rejected, Jesus just keeps teaching in parables. What does this do for us? I love it because what we see here is that Jesus models for us the intended response of continuing to share the gospel Trusting that someone will be able to hear and some will not. He did not get a panic. He did not change his method or his strategy. He just continued to simply teach the word. Mark makes it clear that he did that. And what do we do? In the midst of everything that's going on around us and the people that we want to see come to Christ that aren't and the things that we want to know about the scripture that we don't? Listening to the word and trying to understand it. We keep faithfully sowing gospel seed. And we patiently wait for his kingdom to come. That's the point of this text. That's exactly what God would have us do in this. We should count on the fact that God's word, it moves from concealed to revealed. We spend time with it, we understand it. And the gospel. Simply sown and it will grow in the kingdom. It seems so incomprehensible, I mean insignificant, but it is incomprehensible. We should believe and trust in our Lord. What is our response beyond belief and trust? It's simple. I think there are three ways you can respond to a message like this. And I wouldn't have you, by the way, just practically speaking here, I wouldn't have you try to focus on all three. Maybe you could write them down and think about which one you should focus the most on. But for some of you here today, spiritual truth for you is not obvious. You kindly listen to somebody like me preach for an hour, but you still wonder, like when you read the word for yourself, like why it doesn't make more sense, why it's not more clear. You have big questions about the word. If if these laws of the kingdom are true, you know what the answer to that is? Keep studying. Just keep focusing on the word. It says that Jesus, by the way, in this last passage, Jesus privately explained to his own disciples everything. You have everything you need with the word of God and the Holy Spirit within you to understand biblical truth. Keep working at it. God will make his truth clear. It doesn't require a seminary education to understand the Bible for yourself. There may be a second category of person here where... You want to do more. You want to see people come to Christ. You have people that you have witnessed to. You have prayed about. And they still have not come. And, and, it is, and it's tempting to think, do I need a better method? Do I need to improve the message? Am I just not presenting this thing right? I would have you just keep sowing the word. The farmer, he can't see. He can't see what's going on in that ground. It's doing its work. Maybe you just need to keep sowing or keep resting in what's already been sown. And then maybe there's a final group. It would be tempting to look at our world situation or even what's going on in your own life, not even the world, but your world, and think, this is crazy. I am not seeing God at work in this. You know, the text tells us that God will have his perfect way in the end. And if he will have it in the whole, doesn't it make sense that he would also have it in the particulars? In your life? In your situation? In your circumstances? In your trials? Brothers and sisters, it may not come tomorrow, but it will come. God is at work. And we simply need to trust in that together. Father, I am excited to imagine how you would use these realities here at Faith Bible Church. But I trust that once this truth takes hold, that we will continue to think deeply and widely about the word that we as a church would clarify truth for one another and that We could serve other churches here in Naples and beyond. Or give us insight to your word, to your kingdom, and how it works, and give us the reward us for our our labor, the investment that we bring to truth. We trust that you'll give a bountiful harvest. And Lord, for seeds sown, we pray that they would produce your unstoppable crop. Pray that we here at Faith Bible Church would regularly hear testimonies of how your word does its work in our children and in our family members and with strangers that we meet and neighbors and co-workers. I pray that that others here would would continue to partner together for this, this grand goal of sowing seed and seeing others come into the kingdom. Father, while Satan would also seek to impede the progress of this church and the church in general, I pray that our, our church, that we here today would confidently move forward knowing that the gates of hell will not prevail. For no matter how bad this world gets, I pray that we together would wait arm in arm for that full and final inbreaking of your unfathomable kingdom at the return of Christ. Or give us that type of confidence in your kingdom today. And in the way that it works. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.